I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. podcast is sponsored by my friends at Pucker Herbs. Herbal teas are a fantastic way to increase your water intake and keep you hydrated throughout the day. A little fact for you all. Did you know that your thirst mechanisms switch on when you're already 2% dehydrated? And dehydration leads to fatigue and weakness. So switch the kettle on, pop a pucker tea bag in and sip away. I have had a long-term organic relationship with Pucker Herbs for many years now, and I'm so pleased that they are our official sponsor for Live Well, Be Well Series 1. They are 100% organic and recognised by the Soil Association, as well as ethically sourced. Their newest tea, Peace Tea, has become part of my evening ritual routine and is one of my all-time favourites. Packed with hemp leaf and ashwagandha, these herbs help melt away my daily stresses. Thank you, Pucker Herbs, so much for sponsoring this first series. This week, I speak to Zima Mahultra, cardiologist, researcher, and professor of evidence-based medicine. I have had the privilege of speaking with Azim at European Parliament to address the importance of reducing ultra-processed foods in our current dietary guidelines, alongside working at the same clinic in Harley Street, London. On this episode, we will discuss the myths behind the nutrition claims of COVID-19 and why people with chronic metabolic disease are most at risk and what current lifestyle changes you can make to have a positive impact on your health. Hi, Azim. Thank you for coming on my podcast today. An absolute pleasure, Sarah. (laughs) I actually first want to start to ask, how are you today? I'm very good, actually. Thank you. Um, I suppose as good as as anyone can be in during this uh, crazy, scary time for many. Yeah. And how are you feeling about everything that's happening in the world and where we're finding ourselves Well, I think it's uh, all very troubling, isn't it, really, to be honest, that we've got ourselves into this situation. But I'm somebody that always tries to look at things positively. uh, And I think we will come out of this hopefully stronger and better for it. Yeah, no, I agree. So so during this, and how are you living well? What are you doing to to keep yourself fit and healthy um, and to reduce your anxiety? Well, I like to try and follow my own advice as much as I can, Sarah. Um, I was on Sky News a couple of weeks ago talking about actually how the elephant in the room is the fact that uh, our healthcare system and our uh, general health, unfortunately, in the UK and the USA has been pretty dire. Um, Just to give people some perspective, and there is no reason to suggest that figures are dissimilar in the UK, uh, less than one in five, anything between 12 and 17% of adult Americans are actually metabolically healthy. 
And that's a real problem because one of the reasons our healthcare system is struggling at the moment or why we have this lockdown is because we have not dealt with the chronic disease at the root of the healthcare crisis combined with lack of capacity. So to really answer your question uh, and what I what I tell the public and what I've, I've been telling patients is that you know there is a, a strong likelihood at some point you may well get the coronavirus. But that the difference that we, we can make um, is between getting a mild illness and something more severe. And to do that, it means trying to follow as much as possible a healthy lifestyle. So that focuses, and we'll obviously talk about this in more depth shortly, but about following a, a prudent, healthy diet, um, making sure you keep active and getting a good sleep, which also involves reducing stress levels. So I'm doing all of these things as best as I can at the moment um, to optimize my immune function. So if and when I get the virus, I'll be able to handle it um, with, uh, you know, uh, with only mild symptoms. I mean, I think that's something that we all need to to start looking at is how we can actually try it at home to best protect ourselves from this. It's not just staying at home and hand washing. It's it's everything that we should be doing, such as what we're going to talk about in a bit, such as your lifestyle behaviour. But you work as an NHS cardiologist doctor, and I know that you're taking a bit of time out at the moment. But have you, from speaking to colleagues, seen the strain of the COVID-19 affect the NHS? Yeah, I mean, I've got um, many friends and colleagues on the front line, nurses, um, people working in intensive care, cardiologists, so I'm in contact touch with radiologists as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it is definitely overwhelming the, the system. Although, to be fair, there's something I've written and spoken about and campaigned on for probably coming up to um, well over a decade now, Sarah, is that our healthcare system has been running on uh, thin ice, if you like, for a very, very long time. Uh, because, you know, somebody that works on the front line has done so for, I've been a qualified doctor for almost two decades now, is that we have seen more and more chronic disease, more stress on the system building up over many, many years with no real effective interventions to tackle it. So when something like COVID-19 comes along, then it's no surprise to me that the NHS is unable to cope. And what do you do? You think we do? You think that we will be able to cope? Do you think that we can relieve the strain of the NHS with more people coming forward, back out of retirement to to work with the NHS? Do you think that we will be able to cope? It will there be any positivity? Do you think, or do you think it will collapse? Well, I think it's already collapsed. I think let's be under no illusion. The NHS has collapsed. It collapsed a long time ago. So this is about damage limitation and doing the best we can in the circumstances. In terms of uh, us coming out the other side and getting back to normality that may take several more weeks it may take months uh, probably will take months to get back to complete normality hopefully these lockdown restrictions will be eased to some degree in a few weeks time um, but the real key to protecting the NHS is doing all the preventative side is preventing sick people coming in and then also simultaneously having the capacity to deal with it so you've, you've touched on a really important point there about you know um staff being able, you know, people who are coming out of retirement, etc. In theory, it sounds great. The reality at the moment is, however, um, unfortunately, is a quarter, and some of these are my colleagues, by the way, of NHS staff are actually not working at the moment. They're not on the front line because they are, um, they've got symptoms, they, they may have COVID-19, they don't, they can't get a accurate testing. But combine that with the fact that we haven't got PPE, personal protective equipment, which we know will reduce uh, frequency and severity of frontline staff getting infections. And we already have seen, tragically, four doctors have died um, from contracting COVID-19. 
albeit slightly an older group, but still, you know, the GPs, ENT surgeon, for example, were part of that group of people that sadly lost their lives to it. And that's because um, when you're exposed to a very high viral load on the front line, so people who are very infectious, your body doesn't have the the time, your immune system doesn't have the time to be able to deal with it. And a lot of people, unfortunately, will succumb to the virus from this reason alone. So it is really, we are really struggling right now, but things can get better if staff get the uh, adequate equipment to, to help them fight this, if the testing is widespread and accurate so that more staff can come back to work. And most importantly, that people adhere to the lockdown measures and try and keep themselves healthy at the same time. Now, I know it's not easy, but it's something we must do um, for our community, for ourselves, for our future. Um, and the more that people adhere to this, the more likely we are to come out of this um, with as you know uh, less damage as possible. And so let's just reiterate that for everyone who's listening. It's the 20 seconds of hand washing, which is really important. It's working from home if possible. It's keeping two metres apart and it's going out if you need to for 30 minutes of exercise a day. And that's what the government's recommending at the moment. And you can you can agree with that, can't you, Azim? That's what we should be doing to making sure that we are helping the NHS as much as possible. I mean, I got I got quite teary last week when everybody came out to clap for the carers, for the NHS workers. Um, it, you know, really, it really touched, it really touched me. And I did actually get quite tearful on it. And I think we spoke actually after that happened. And you mentioned to me that in Italy, one in 10 people infected are doctors, which is quite a worrying fact, but doesn't surprise me because they are the ones on the front line. And as you said, catching that high viral load, which obviously is now making it more lethal. So with that coming over the next few weeks, do you think we will be prepared for when it does start to spike and we will be protecting our doctors? Well, at the moment, we're not. Um, Sarah, that's the problem. I have a, a friend of mine who's a nurse who um, was asked to go to a ward for something that wasn't an emergency and she point blank refused to go because she didn't have the PPE. And I completely understand and sympathise with her. So until they get that, until we have frontline doctors coming out saying we've got all the equipment, we're able to handle this, then um, it's, it's all speculative, to be honest. So let's hope the government can act on that much more quickly than they, are, they have done so far. In terms of, um, I think another thing to, to say, just to give, you know, put some perspective on all of this, is that um, I'm, I'm completely, you know, it was very moving to see so many people clapping for the, clapping for our carers, clapping for NHS staff. I think, um, you know, it's one of the greatest things, uh, greatest achievements, certainly in, in Britain uh, in the last century was the formation of the NHS. And, you know, I'm very proud of someone to work in the NHS. I'm very proud of the principle, practicing the principle that we treat people according to their clinical need, not ability to pay. I think it's a basic human right that everybody has access to healthcare. And I have, you know, treated thousands of people in my career and from all different demographics. And I've, I have always strived, and I believe the majority of people in the NHS strive to give the best possible care to somebody, regardless of their, their background, their socioeconomic status, their colour, their creed, whether they're a chief executive of a bank or whether they, you know, are, are a cab driver. Or, you know, we treat people exactly the same and with the best possible. And I think this is a great thing, one of the great things about this country. But I think what this clapping for our care is also epitomises that people genuinely really passionately care about the NHS. But I think what would be more useful and important is that, you know, the, the, the country and the population realise how important the NHS is. And 
you know, there are leaders and people out there that highlight when certain government reforms or lack of funding to the NHS is not happening, that they shout about it and they make their voices heard. And that influences government policy. Now, that's a bit more of a complicated area, but I think that people need to, who are listening, need to think about that also moving forward at the end of the day, because our NHS is not going to disappear. We may have another pandemic in a few years from now, hopefully nothing like this, but we need to be prepared for it. But that does mean investing in our health service, but also in population health as well, which is something that you and I, Sarah, are big advocates on, you know, and we've been talking about this for a while, so which we'll move on to. One of the things, one of the points I want to raise as well, just to give you perspective, um, you know, we have a a pandemic of coronavirus, but there's also a pandemic of fear. And some of that fear is being driven by, um, for many people, exaggerated concerns and beliefs about um, of, of the risk of death. So at the moment, and the data is evolving, but the best possible evidence at the moment tells us, just to give you some comparison, seasonal flu has a mortality rate of about 0.1%, which is about one in a thousand. Okay. Of course, there is a greater preponderance of people who are older and frail, et cetera, dying from it. But on average, it's about 0.1%. With COVID-19, the best data at the moment tells us that if you get infected, if you pick up the virus, the overall mortality rate is about 0.7%. It may be closer to one, but something like seven to 10 times relative terms worse than the flu. If you're younger than 60, it's um, it's closer to 0.1%. And if you're over 60, it's quite high. It's about just over 3%. So this is about putting it in perspective. Um, yes, there, we, we're hearing awful stories of younger people, you know, who've been dying from this. But still, the risk of you dying if you catch infection, if you're young and healthy, is very, very low. Uh, and I think that's important just to try and quell some of these fears. On the other hand, yes, if you're older and frail and you've got lots of comorbid conditions, and we'll talk about that when we talk about diet and, and how that affects the immune system, then your risk is certainly much higher. And that was published in The Lancet, wasn't it? I think on March 31st. Was that correct? From that, China. Yeah. yeah. that's and, and, and that is some really positive news. I think that takes us on really nicely, actually, to my next question, because I'd love you to explain this for many listeners that might not know, but we've spoken together a lot about metabolic conditions. That's type 2 diabetes and obesity. And surprisingly, the evidence actually shows that these people can be most vulnerable. And it's something that's not talked about that much. So I'd love you to explain a little bit more about this. Why are people that are obese or might have high blood pressure or have type 2 diabetes, why are these people more at risk? And what is a metabolic condition? Because I don't think many people really know what that stands for. Okay, so let's talk about chronic metabolic disease. Essentially, these are diseases related to, um, essentially, uh, in very simple terms, uh, excess body fat. So these include uh, high blood pressure, which you mentioned, type 2 diabetes. Linked to that, and obviously this is my area of expertise, is cardiovascular disease or heart disease. Um, And these seem to be the most vulnerable groups from getting more severe, serious illness. Now, in medicine, we have known for a long time, we have practiced for a long time, where patients who are type 2 diabetic, for example, or diabetic, if their blood glucose is high and they have an infection, they tend to do worse. So a lot of patients, you know, who come in with heart attacks and their blood glucose goes off, even if they're not known to be diabetic, would be put on, um, you know, uh, glucose controlling drugs or insulin. Um, And that is very well known that controlling blood glucose um, does give better outcomes. And the reason for that is, is that high blood glucose in the bloodstream does interfere with the optimal function 
of white cells and the immune system, to put it in very simple, basic terms. It's quite complex, but that's what people should understand. And, and that's important because combating it, um, and of course, you know, this is theoretical to some degree, but highly likely that if you follow a, a diet which is you know, devoid of foods that's going to lead to excess body weight, even in the short term, people, you know, I have many of my patients there, as you know, you know, managed to reverse their type 2 diabetes within weeks of changing diet, is that if you concentrate on avoiding the ultra processed foods, eating real food, particularly the sort of very starchy, refined carbohydrates. So these are carbohydrates that lack fiber uh, and, and, you know, uh, good nutrition. If you avoid those foods and you're in a much better place, to make sure your good glucose is in a better state, as well as all the other things we you know, which we'll talk about in terms of nutrition. So, um, those are really the chronic metabolic diseases. Cancer is also, in, in some ways, described as part of that as well. And we know that cancer is very strongly linked to obesity. Um, the other thing about people who are very overweight and particularly obese is that their lung function is not as, is 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 affected. And of course, the most people, the people suffering most serious complications of COVID-19 are people who develop pneumonia and uh, go into respiratory failure. So if you're starting off from a baseline that is poor because you're obese or because you've got, you know, some chronic lifestyle related disease, then the chances are that you're more likely to suffer, suffer severe complications if you get the virus. Well, that's really interesting. So what would you advise? And I'd love you to also reiterate on the um, carbohydrates which lack fibre, because I think we would both understand that, but a lot of people still might not know which of those carbohydrates to possibly eat less of and which of the carbohydrates to possibly eat more of as well. Yeah. So ver so let's start from the basic level. So I think if every... So the, the the broad issue right now, sort of the big low-hanging fruit in terms of what I think most people in nutritional science can agree on, is that we are over-consuming ultra-processed food. Half of the British diet now is ultra-processed food. What does that mean in, in layman's terms? It's basically your, a lot of it is your snack foods. It's like cakes and biscuits and crisps and that kind of stuff. It's also packaged food that come in a you know, microwavable food, for example, that comes under ultra process. But in very basic terms, what I tell my patients for them to understand something in a simple rule of thumb is if it's a mass produced food, a packaged food, and it has five or more ingredients according to the international classification of, of processed foods called the Nova classification, then it's ultra processed. So really, that should be something you need to be avoiding. Now, how does that link into the whole glucose and carbohydrate? Most of the ingredients, a significant amount of the ingredients of these foods are carbohydrates. And again, they lack fiber. And the reason fiber is important is because um, when you absorb a carbohydrate, when you eat a carbohydrate, the absorption of blood glucose into the bloodstream is slowed if it has high fiber content. And therefore, because the absorption of glucose uh, is slowed down, the response of insulin is slowed down, your blue glucose levels are more steady. But also what we know is that these sorts of high glycemic index carbohydrates also link to increasing, um, you know, stop you feeling full. And therefore, you're more likely to consume more. So the first thing I'll say is cut out all the snack foods. Um, and then in terms of foods that, you know, it's interesting about the whole starchy carbs and refined carbohydrates. Unfortunately, modern bread, even the wholemeal stuff, which is in the supermarket, is ultra processed. If you go into a supermarket and you pick up a loaf of bread, See how many ingredients you can account. 
and it's well over five. It's in, in our, often it's going up to 15 or 20 ingredients and there's not a lot of fiber and it's all to process. So um, these sorts of breads are things you should avoid. Ideally, you want to be getting bread get bed from the bakery. Um, I would say if you can, I would, I would avoid all supermarket bread altogether um, from your diet. And the other thing is, of course, sugar, which we, we've talked about before. But sugar is um, another big culprit because it gives you uh, calories you don't need. We know just in small amounts, it starts getting linked to, again, excess body fat and metabolic dysfunction and, and conditions like high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes and heart disease. So these are the types of um, products and foods you want to be tr avoiding. And of course, you then need to think about, well, what are you eating then? Well, you know, whole foods, lots of whole fruit and vegetables. I think, um, you know, unfortunately, meat has been demonized uh, unnecessarily. We know very from consistent evidence that only the only real link between red meat and cancer comes from processed meat because of the nitrites uh, within uh, these meats. But if people are going to have a steak or, you know, two or three times a week, there's no wrong, nothing wrong with that. If you're going to have the burger, have it without the bread. And the reason that's important, as you know, Sarah, is it's a very good source of protein, but also contains zinc as and well. Iron. And iron. And iron. And these are really also very important components for immune function, which Heme you need. Yeah. And heme iron as well, which is very different to nomhem nom iron. So that's a really important point as well to make. Yeah. And the older population in this country, so there's a very huge proportion of people who are not getting enough protein in their diet. Now, I completely understand the ethical reasons for some people why they want to be vegetarian or vegan. My mum, my late mother was vegetarian. Um, but the best sources of, of protein actually come from animal products. Um, if you really can't, uh, you know, if you really are a vegetarian or vegan or whatever, then you must try and make sure you get your protein from the best sources of plant products too and still avoid these ultra-processed food. As you know, a lot of food gets marketed um, as being so-called healthy or vegan or whatever when it actually has the opposite effect on your health. I did a um, uh, recently did a small kind of research study for the BBC, uh, and then it was it was publicised in the Sun newspaper, where we looked we took to we looked at ten sort of common fast food items from Greggs, McDonald's, Burger King, etc. And what I found is that the foods that were more, most likely to give you a heart attack because they lack fibre and because they had high sort of uh, refined carbohydrate load in particular were actually the vegan products. They were more likely to give you, uh, or the veggie you know the veggie burger was more likely to give you a heart attack than the actual burger. So we need people need to think about these things as well with, you know, think about what are you eating and how is it affecting your immune system? Well, I think that's really important because, you know, there's so many myths out there about boosting your immune system, but we know that you can't boost your immune system straight away. Um, it's, you know, the best way to keep healthy immune functioning is eating good foods in a balanced way, not over consuming on your ultra processed foods, reducing your stress intake increasing a bit of exercise but not too vigorously having good sleep decreasing on your alcohol I mean there's so many different factors but I think it's really important also to touch upon there is you know as you said it's not good to demonize foods it's not good to go on fatty diets because actually a lot of evidence shows that when you dramatically cut your diet actually that can have an effect on your immune system and in, in dampen it you know that's something that a lot of people don't look at people sometimes cut out and I see in clinic cut out a lot of food groups and this can actually be more detrimental towards our health um and so I'd love you to just enhance a little bit on your protein comments that you were talking about because we know that the coronavirus has been shown to affect the elderly a lot more than than the younger population 
And so protein is needed in a higher intake once you're over 65. And we know that this is the most vulnerable group at the moment. So would you be able to expand a bit more on the protein needs for me? Yeah, Sarah. So um, so you raise a really important point there. Um, As you get older, natural tendency of the body is you lose with aging, you lose muscle mass. Um, And people, we call this sarcopenia, Um, especially people in their, you know, in your your quads, in your thighs, in your arms, um, which, you know, you know, separate to the immune system also will affect balance. You're more likely to fall. The people are vulnerable to breaking their hip. And if you break your hip and end up in hospital, then one in four chance you're going to die because of it. So this is another sort of general public health issue is that um, because you are more likely to lose muscle mass as you get older with age, you need to increase your protein requirements uh, for maintaining muscle mass and keeping your body, you know, in good shape. But also, you know, having enough protein is important to immune function for immune cells to work properly, that you need enough protein in your diet. So that's why it's important for the elderly in particular. And so I just wanted to say that over 65, it's one gram to 1.2 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. And for your normal average adult, it's 0.8 grams of protein um, per kilo of body weight. So that's just a good, interesting fact to pop in there while you're looking at your meal times and how much protein you should be including. That's just a really good point um, to pop in. So if I really want to go on to a few facts um, and myths and presumptions made about this virus. Um, so this one interesting one that I've heard a lot about is vitamin C. So I'd love to hear your take on does vitamin C help with COVID-19? Because from most of the research, it shows that actually we it doesn't help prevent COVID-19 um, at all. Um, but eating a good amount of vitamin C obviously is recommended for day-to-day health. But what's your take on this? Yeah, I don't think you're right. There is no real strong convincing evidence that um, high doses of supplemental vitamin C, for example, has any effect certainly with data we have up to, at the moment. Um, there are some stories coming out of China that there were, they did use intravenous vitamin C and apparently anecdotally a lot of patients were helped by it. But again, we need rigorous data to kind of support that conclusion. What I would say, as you said already, is vitamin C is essential for the immune system to function. But you should and you can get that from following a healthy diet, which, you know, as, as you know, um, citrus fruits, for example, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, you know, uh, these are very good sources, you know, blueberries, very good sources of vitamin C, tomatoes. So you need to be getting those sorts of, in, you know, foods in, in within your diet plan to make sure that you've got normal levels. Whether any excess vitamin C on top of that has any benefit is is very debatable. Uh, the one thing I would say is I'm not, as you, as you know, Sarah, I'm not one to advocate for supplements unless people have a specific deficiency for whatever reason. So in terms of general population, you don't need supplements at all, um, with the exception of maybe vitamin D, especially in this country, people, you know, vitamin D levels uh, on average are lower than they should be. Um, and there is some evidence of a, of a reduction in, not about COVID-19, but, you know, there's no reason to, um, uh, why this virus isn't different in some, in many ways to other respiratory viruses. There is some evidence that vitamin D supplementation does reduce frequency of very strong data but there is some data there so that may be something that you can probably do without any excess harm and in terms of vitamin c uh, people are asking me this all the time i've got friends relatives um, messaging me should i take vitamin c should i take zinc blah blah blah. Um, some of these vitamins as you know can be toxic in excess 
uh, and uh, that's something that isn't discussed enough. Vitamin C, by and large, although we talked about this, it can obviously cause GI upset for some people, some stomach issues, obviously reversible and stopping it, um, is generally very safe and doesn't cause toxicity to the body per se. Yes, you get stomach stomach complaints and all that kind of thing, but isn't actually toxic to the body. So if people, um, you know, if they, if they feel better, they think that, you know, psychologically they'd rather keep high-dose vitamin C, certainly during this period, um, in general, there's no harm with that. Yeah, no, and I completely, I completely agree with that. It's about making sure as well, rather than singling out one specific vitamin or micronutrient such as vitamin C or zinc, it's about making sure that they're all consumed together in a very diet because they're all needed to maintain an immune system. That's vitamin A, that's vitamin C, that's vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin B12, all of them. And I think that's a very good point that you did make about vitamin D because that's the only vitamin that we struggle to get in our diet from food sources alone because it is from direct sunlight. Um, so during the winter months, Public Health England do advise you to supplement from October to about May with a vitamin D. So I agree with you on that as well. It's probably the only supplement that we should be taking. And the rest, if you eat a good balanced diet and you're not cutting out major food groups, you will be gaining all of those micronutrients that you need. So that's just really important to state as well. I also want to ask, have you seen any myths or, you know, misinformation spreading around social media recently on COVID-19 that you'd like to debust while you're on this podcast? Well, there's a few. There's so much going around, Sarah, to be honest. Uh, and I've got, you know, some friends who are very educated, um, you know, uh, actresses, film directors and stuff, sending me stuff, asking me, you know, is this true, etc. And some of it is really shocking. That, and, it's, it, and, you know, for someone that doesn't understand basics of kind of evidence and doesn't have a deep background understanding of all of this, it's very compelling stuff. It's very easy to understand. There are some great stories, literally stories out there, um, that are uh, coming across as being, you know, uh, accurate. And that, that's unfortunate. These sorts of, this fear pandemic does breed a lot of this stuff. Um, I think one of the very simple ones is, you know, there's a, if you if you drink hot water every 20 minutes, that's going to reduce the risk of, of getting the virus. Again, that's completely false. Um, there is some evidence that very high temperatures kill the virus. There may be something in people taking um sort of doing hot steam inhalation uh, which often people do when they get colds anyway there may be something in that but you know uh, which probably won't do you any harm um but no the, a lot of the stuff that's coming out there are also there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there you know this was started by um a drug company in uh, in china that already has the vaccine. Um, this is about hitting America's economy. I mean, it, there's a lot of stuff out there, uh, which is unfortunate. And I just reply back very simply when I've looked at it or just seen a brief summary. I just, you know, what I will tell other people to do is don't share it. If you get something like that um, and it isn't coming from a credible source, just reply. Either don't reply, just reply fake news. Yeah. No, and I think that's a, that's a scary thing. I mean, I've seen so many people spread that you can contract the coronavirus through food, which I also just want to state, um, there is no evidence for that. There has been evidence onto different kinds of surfaces, such as cardboard and, and hard surfaces. And we still don't even know really how long it lasts on your clothes. But a lot of people I now see are so worried about buying food, fresh food, um, and that they need to bleach it to kill the virus. But that can actually do more harm to us than good. So I think it's just really important that there isn't any evidence out there to show 
that it can be transmitted through eating food. I think the best advice we can say is make sure you just wash all of your food like you would do or like you should be doing normally. And cooking food will decrease the risk. So just making sure that your food's cooked. 100% agree. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the one thing I would say is obviously people are, are in their houses and you know, we've got these days we can have home delivery, we can have Deliveroo, um, and obviously Deliveroo also does have a lot of healthy options, so it doesn't have to just be fast food, um, is really just making sure you continue with the hand washing. So, you know, um, the, the packaging, of course, um, you want to make sure once you've handled the packaging of the food, you wash your hand before you eat the food. And of course, if people are worried, then yeah, just re- take, does he reheat it or heat, heat up the food before you eat it. But yeah, bleaching and all that kind of stuff isn't, you're right, it's going to cause probably more harm than good and it's completely unnecessary. But I lastly want to ask you, and I want to end on a positive note. So I think while everyone's at home um, and are looking at ways to increase their nutrition, increase their exercise, what does live well mean to you and how do you be well and what would your advice be to everybody at the moment while they're in isolation to help improve their health yeah so i think in terms of diet we've talked about that eat real food try and avoid the ultra processed stuff enjoy your food it's a great opportunity for a lot of people to learn to cook to be honest you know there's so much information that you get on youtube um, in terms of, you know, I think this is a great time. We know that less than half of the you know, population um, uh, don't actually cook uh, regularly. So I think that's a really good time for people to learn to cook. Um, in terms of exercise, do keep active. Uh, moderate activity does um, do something to help your immune system be optimized as well. Don't overdo it. If you overdo it, if you're doing more than an hour of, you know, uh, of, of moderate to vigorous activity, uh, more particularly vigorous activity a day, especially if you're not taking rest and eating properly, then you're probably going to do harm to your immune system, make you more vulnerable to infection. So don't overdo the the exercise. But of course, if you can get out at least once a day, I would say, well, actually once a day is a recommendation. Ideally, get out once a day, do some activity, get some fresh air, do some workouts at home. This is what I do. Um, you know, I'm someone that's so regular in the gym, Sarah. You know, for me, one of the biggest um, sort of uh, what's been most challenging for me is not being able to go to the gym because it, for me it's also a place, a place where I kind of have peace it's where you know I, I do my, my my resistance training I do my cardio so I'm having to now you know convert all of that into what I do in the house pretty much other than running when I go out so push-ups and stuff you can do on the chair there's loads of innovative creative ways of working out at home again you can go to YouTube and just you know put plug in home workout and you'll find something to do be disciplined about it. Do do your exercise. Um, sleep, really important for immune system. Try and aim to get and just be very focused on getting at least seven to eight hours sleep a night now. Um, and that will mean uh, not having caffeine after midday or mean switching off all social media at least a couple of hours before bedtime if you're not managing to do this already in terms of getting a good amount of sleep and you'll find within a few days you'll be a lot better off. Um, I've also got an app I use called Calm, which is great for meditation. Um, If you can find 20 minutes where, you know, in the morning, in the evening, where you're just doing some deep breathing um, and just slowing your heart rate down, all of these things are going to be really good for your health. And have some fun if you can. You know, it's not easy, but connect with people, whether it's FaceTime with friends at the moment, um, watching stuff on TV that's going to boost your mood, not make you more fearful. Um, I, for example, have decided I'm only watching the news maybe once or twice a day, keeping the TV off because it's constant coronavirus right now. 
this is not good for your mental health if you're just watching the news constantly because it's all fear, fear, fear. And it's not good for you. And, it, you know, you need to distract your mind as much as you can. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got Netflix. So, you know, I, I, I'm watching stand comedy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I just spoke to one of my friends who said that, you know, she's with her parents in the countryside and has um, they're, they're watching Friends for the very first time in their life and really enjoying <laughs> oh, going back wow. to series one. So, you know, just be a bit creative, but try and do things that are going to give you some laughter and some happiness if you can during this time. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, let's end with what's your favourite Netflix series at the moment then? Oh, God. Um, I'm actually just finishing, um, dare I say it, Suits, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, well, I've never watched Suits. Maybe I should be doing what your friend's doing and start watching well, it. Well, well, I, you know, I hadn't, um, I only became aware of obviously Meghan Markle when she got, you know, um, hitched to Harry. Um, but actually, when I started watching it, I realised she's actually quite a phenomenal great actress but the series is is really fantastic um and if you watch the if you haven't seen it um i guarantee if you watch the first episode the pilot episode you'll be hooked after it really okay right you put it onto my uh my netflix list which <laughs> <laughs> until until recently i haven't been watching any netflix series and now i've got a huge list that everyone's recommending to me so yeah i completely agree it's about yeah, switching you, I, off absolutely and it's one of those ones where you won't go to bed after watching an episode feeling disturbed you'll kind of be like oh this is interesting because there are there are some really great stuff out there um, you know, some really amazing Netflix uh, series I've watched over the years, um, you know, uh, and I recommend them to people. But there are some right now, probably not the ones you want to be watching, uh, that may end up you going, you know, going to bed feeling a bit disturbed. And you want to try and avoid those, um, you know, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, you know, Pandemic, probably not one to watch right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure that is a good one to watch. No, it's about getting into a good sleep routine. And that's so important. We don't even do that in our normal day to day lives. So now this is the time to really start working on a good sleep routine. And to really start switching your mind off. Because as you said, as soon as I turn on the TV, it's all about the coronavirus. So we need to start allowing ourselves some headspace away from this. Because I do worry about the rise in mental illnesses. Um, that this is going to affect. So I think that's some really good advice. So everyone, that's that suits. <laughs> if you've not watched it, Azeem Ultra recommends. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Live Well, Be Well. And um, yeah, we'll be keeping updated with your, what's your Instagram and your Twitter handle just so everybody can go and have a look at all of your great evidence and research you'll be posting. Uh, my Instagram is Lifestyle Medicine Doctor. Um, my Twitter is just my name, Dr. Asim Malhotra, and I do post a lot of stuff on Facebook. If you just look up Asim Malhotra, you can find me on Facebook too. Fantastic. Thanks, Azim. Thank you for listening to Live Well, Be Well. Please do share with your friends and help spread awareness of this podcast. I hope these conversations inspire you to create a positive change in your life. And if you do like the podcast, please do leave a review. Until next time, live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.